Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. So here is the Trump administration saying that they are now going to end temporary protected status, abolish it, and send people back to El Salvador. Obviously, some people have been living in the United States since the early 1980s, you know, because people have lives here. You know, they have homes, they have families, people, kids have grown up. All the rest of these things have happened here. So, you know, Trump is saying, you know, well, you're, we're going to just uproot you and we're going to send you back to El Salvador. This is sort of piling injustice on top of injustice. That's the voice of author David Bacon. And this week's show, we speak to David Bacon about new immigration policies under Trump and how we as a society should respond. Stay tuned. His name is David Bacon. He's a California-based writer and photographer. He's a factory worker and a union organizer for two decades with the union farm workers. He has been documenting the lives of farm workers through photographs and journalism since 1988. His latest book, In the Fields of the North, En los Campos del Norte, co-published by the University of California. He is a favorite guest of Latin Ways, and we're very privileged to have him. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. It's a pleasure as always to be with you, Sylvia. Now, you have been not just photographing, but also documenting the lives of indocumentados, of the undocumented, the lives of people who live in the margins, in the shadows of society, and yet are the backbone of the economy. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences in their lives? How do we reconcile, you know, our society having such a number of people without any kind of visibility, any kind of protection? Um, it's interesting, Sylvia, because I was a, a union organizer for a long time, and most of the uh, work that I did involved helping workers um, formed their unions, which usually meant going to war with their employers, with their bosses, in factories and fields and other work sites where a lot and, and oftentimes most and sometimes even everybody was undocumented. And that gave me the um, understanding that undocumented people are certainly vulnerable um, because of their immigration status but they are not passive. Um, people, if given the opportunity, I think it's like people everywhere, um, if given the opportunity to try to change their situation and try and improve like their working conditions or raise their wages or fight against injustice, um, people will do that. And in fact, when you look at the history of unions like the United Farm Workers in the U.S., or the organizing even that's gone on, say, in the nurseries in the fields in British Columbia or in Ontario, um, you see that um, this organizing work is being done, or, or this work of, of fighting against injustice is being done um, by immigrants and by people who are often in very vulnerable situations, whether it's being 
an undocumented worker um, here in the United States or somebody who's in the Special Agricultural Workers Program in, um, in Canada, in other words, a guest worker, um, people are vulnerable because of their immigration status, for sure. So um, if you're undocumented in the U.S., what that means is that you can get picked up and deported um, very easily. In fact, if you get your boss angry at you, that's always something that you have to worry about. Um, and the same thing if you are a guest worker working in a nursery in B.C. Uh, you know, if you begin organizing and protesting, um, the possibility exists that um, the person that you're working for, or the company that you're working for, is going to fire you. And when you get fired, of course, you have to leave. You know, you can't, um, your, your visa is conditioned on your employment. And if you lose your employment, then you have to go. Um, and not only that, you also usually get blacklisted for the following season. You can't go back to work for the same place because the company that brought you the first, in the first place won't, won't hire you again. These are, are ways in which people's immigration status or lack of immigration status makes people vulnerable. It makes it more risky to organize. I, for any worker in the U.S. or Canada, to organize a union is a risk um, because you can be fired, even though the laws say that this shouldn't happen, um, it says it's illegal. We all know that it does happen. And so everybody thinks about that. Um, in fact, that's usually the first thing you think about when you think about organizing a union. On the one hand, you're angry about the conditions that you want to change. On the other hand, um, you think about, well, what do I have to lose here? And what's going to happen to me if I try to do that? Um, and that's true for all workers. But if you are an immigrant worker without papers, or if you are a guest worker, you also have to think about the danger of deportation and what that means. And that can be very, very serious because it's not just the humiliation of being deported and having to leave and getting caught up in that system. Oftentimes, um, people, when they come to the U.S. or Canada to work, um, it's very costly to do that. You know, these days to, ca to cross the border between Mexico and, and the U.S., if you're being um, brought across by a, a guide or a coyote, um, that costs five or $6,000 easily. Um, and the cost of, of paying for the recruitment into the guest worker program is also a, a lot of money. And so people um, at home in their hometowns in Mexico or Guatemala or wherever people are coming from, um, people, they mortgage their homes, they mortgage their farms, they borrow money from their friends. And so if you get deported, um, that means that you lose your ability to pay back those debts. And that can have some pretty disastrous consequences for people. So, you know, this really kind of like ups the ante, I guess you would say. And I think that what that means to me is that um, you can see the courage that people have when faced with these risks and faced with these problems. People um, organize themselves and they fight for justice anyway. Um, right now, in um, Bellingham, right south of the border there, um, there's a woman, Maru Moraviepando. Maru um, is an undocumented um, immigrant from Mexico who's been living in Washington State for ooh, a long time, 20 years, I think at least. Um, her, her, her daughter, Jennifer, who's you know, um, now in, in college in, in Bellingham, was born here in, in the United States. 
And Maru has been an immigrant rights activist in the U.S. for almost all of those years. In fact, uh, Maru organized the vigils, the hunger strikes, um, the encampments outside the detention center in Tacoma, um, south of Seattle, where um, literally thousands of people have been imprisoned um, solely because of their immigration status. And Maru really organized it and and sort of shown the spotlight of publicity and public pressure and the pressure of these mass demonstrations on this center. She even helped the people who were inside the detention center itself to protest and organize. Um, you know, they were doing all of the work inside this detention center. They cooked the meals, they made the beds, they cleaned the floors, for which they were not getting paid. So this was sort of like slave labor on top of being... Um, in the detention center. And Maru um, organized all of these protests. And then in December, um, by no coincidence whatsoever, um, the Department of Homeland Security, um, Trump's government, um, sent Maru a notice saying, we are calling you in to ICE to show us what kind of immigration status you have here. And the threat obviously is that if Maru um, goes in, that they're going to hold her for deportation and they're going to deport her back to Mexico. And and that is strictly retaliation against her for all of the work that she's done. And yet, did that stop Maru from doing it? No, it didn't. In fact, it's, I think, made her even more active and the people around her active in defending her. So um, I just have an enormous amount of admiration for her and for the people who stand up and who um, fight for justice, um, despite the fact that their immigration status um, makes us something that's very risky for them to do. When we look at the present situation with the election of President Trump, um, for many people, there's sort of a dissolution and just kind of a letting go, right? But every time we look away, something else is happening. And so let's talk a little bit about this, because a lot of the times we blame the people who are being most impacted. So we blame the immigrants. Why do they come anyways? Why do they, um, you know, why don't they just stay in their homes and farm their farms? And here, I think we need to talk a little bit about the way that power has co-created structures that impoverish people, even in their own lands. So in the case of Salvadorian immigrants, um, most of Salvadorians, most of us left because a U.S. intervention in El Salvador, of U.S. support for a dictatorship that was killing people, you know, more than a billion dollars spent in supporting a war. And and you see the effects of that. We used to joke that most Salvadorians lived outside El Salvador. Clearly, that's not the case, but many were forced and many find themselves working in factories. So can we talk a little bit about the impact of so-called trade agreements like the NAFTA in promoting this kind of migration? Because for us, it's migration. Well, you know, in the case of El Salvador, um, what we had was the um, Central American Free Trade Agreement, which was patterned after the North American Free Trade Agreement, um, the one that the U.S. and Canada negotiated with Mexico, and then, you know, CAFTA kind of extended that um, into Central America. But um, going back in history, even before 
on that agreement, um, you mentioned, Sylvia, that the the first really big wave of migration from Salvador, uh, from El Salvador in, in modern history came as a result of the war. And so let's, you know, think about what, what was going on in the war in El Salvador. Um, El Salvador was a, a, a U.S. neocolony, let's call it that. In other words, the United States controlled the economy of El Salvador for the purpose of um, enriching U.S. investors who had money invested in El Salvador and the rich Salvadorans who kind of made their money in cooperation with the U.S. And those two groups together, they ran the government of El Salvador. El Salvador was a dictatorship because of that, because they needed that kind of political control to kind of keep in place this very unjust system that was impoverishing most people at the, you know, for the benefit of a tiny few. You know, I have a friend, um, uh, Ana Martinez, who we were organizers together in Los Angeles for the United Electrical Workers in the, um, in the 1990s, in the early 90s. And Ana, I first met actually when she came to the United States in 1979, I think, 1979 or 1980. And Ana had been a worker in the Texas Instruments plant in Ilopango, right outside of San Salvador. And um, in that plant, which was obviously a, a, a factory owned by this huge U.S. corporation, Texas Instruments, um, and the reason why it was in El Salvador to begin with was in order to take advantage of the low wages in El Salvador, which TI was then using. It, was, it hired people, put them to work on these production lines to assemble um, electronic equipment that in turn turned around and sold in the U.S. So the low wages of, these, of the workers in this plant were a source of enormous profits for this company. Well, in, I think it was in 1979, there was a general strike that was organized by workers all across El Salvador. And Ana was part of a group of workers who were trying to organize a union in this plant and who wanted to participate in this general strike. And so on the day of the strike, she remembered that she um, kind of was, was waiting for the word, not knowing quite what was going to happen, how she was going to get the workers to stop. And when the when the time came, um, the workers came, a couple of workers came over from the unionized printing plant next door and told her that the strike was on. And so she went over to the button that stopped the machines and stopped the production line, and she pressed the button. And she said that the security guards of, of um, Texas Instruments and the local police then began walking up and down the lines with their guns out, threatening the workers. They took those two guys who had come over from the printing plant plant next door, and they took them outside in front of the factory, the TI factory, and they shot them and killed them. And then the workers from the TI plant, they went down to their union um, office um, in town, and the guards and the police followed them down, and they shot up the union office and killed more people. And that was when Anna came to the United States because she was basically fleeing for her life. So this is what El Salvador was like, and this is why people organized that um, civil war, that guerrilla war, in order to change this kind of social order. And what happened was that the 
United States government and the Reagan administration then armed the Salvadoran government to the teeth. Um, it trained death squads. Uh, you know, and these death squads were trained, were, were basically military people who were trained at the School of the Americas, who then turned around and trained their guns on Salvadorans. Um, they assassinated Archbishop Romero. They assassinated U.S. nuns in their um, home in, in, in El Salvador. And people fought that war for years then in order to try to stop this kind of terror. And as a result of that, about two million people came from El Salvador to the United States and to Canada. Um, so that's where that migration came from. And, and TPS in the United States, Temporary Protected Status, was a status that was fought for by the immigrant rights movement in the United States in order to protect those people who had come from El Salvador from being deported back to El Salvador. And then the U.S. negotiated a trade agreement to make it even easier for big corporations to invest in El Salvador. People went into the streets in El Salvador to try to stop that agreement. More people got killed in the process. Um, more people came. And so here is the Trump administration saying that they are now going to end temporary protected status, abolish it, and send people back to El Salvador. Obviously, some people have been living in the United States since the early 1980s, you know, because people have lives here. You know, they have homes, they have families, people, kids have grown up. All the rest of these things have happened here. So, you know, Trump is saying, you know, well, you're, we're going to just uproot you and we're going to send you back to El Salvador. This is sort of piling injustice on top of injustice. Yeah. Because, you know, the whole reason why people are here to begin with is because of what the United States did in El Salvador. And now here Trump is coming and saying, well, we're not even going to look at the history. We're not responsible for anything if you're Salvadoran. Get out. You know, I think it's a scandal. It's a shame and a scandal. You know, they say that time heals all wounds. I say that time conceals all wounds. So can we talk about the ramifications that this will have, not just on Salvadorian lives? We know there will be impacted. We know that they will be deeply um uprooted and you know life will be many lives will be distraught you know i'm sure salvadorians were survivors and people will find ways to survive some will not that's just you know what happens when injustice is allowed to go uh, rampant but um but can we talk about the 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 weavings that that we are co-creating because this is not an impact just for Salvadorans this is also an attack on labor in North America an attack on the fabric of what it means to be part of a society these are people who are part of your community these are people who are your neighbors these are people who go to school with your children the whole the whole policy first of all of mass deportations is is destroying families and communities. And we're talking here about Salvadorans, but, you know, this is also, um, Trump just did the same thing for people coming from Haiti. And Haiti is another example of a country in which U.S. intervention and U.S. actions towards Haiti is in large part responsible for the kind of crisis in Haiti that has caused people to come to the U.S. Um, to begin with. But the cost of people's families, the cost of our communities is is very, very, very high um, because, as you say, people are 
um, are part of our communities here in, in all kinds of different ways. We co-create our cultures. And when you allow um, your government, your neighbor, your cousin, your father, whoever it is, to create um, these kinds of patterns that farther uh, deepen the inequality, the injustice, the suffering, the, the death you know, that this will cause uh, to many people, um, then you're creating a new way of being. So I think globalization is, is a great thing for many things. Um, you know, in ways that it it allows us to connect with others. It also is a way to homogenize injustice. If you think about um, monopo- monopolies of any kind are not at the service of people. And at some point, I think we as the people need to come out of this sleep that if the U.S. deports people, somehow there will be more jobs for other people. Most of the jobs that the Salvadorians are doing are not being done by any other American. Let's be clear about that. Most of the things that immigrants come and do are things that are essential to society and yet are not rewarded, are not even acknowledged. So can we talk about that co-creation of culture because I I don't think we are going to see a better future ahead creating more devastation you know and a lot and and just looking the other way because when we look the other way we sort of uh, lose a part of ourselves I think um here in the United States you know the creation of culture you know it's a very I think it's a very interesting question because the Salvadorans who came and who have been living here and working here for, what, 30-odd years, um, more, um, almost 40 years now, people are part of the, Salvadoran workers are part of the U.S. working class. They're not a separate working class all by themselves. They are part of the working class of the United States, and they have the same situation, same problems that workers in general have. You know, whether it's the insecurity of their jobs or the low wages or no health care or all the rest of it. Um, Furthermore, people are working, even though it's true that um, if you look at who the janitors are in the office buildings in Los Angeles, you'll find that most of those workers are Salvadorans. And if you go out into the fields in California, you'll find that most of the workers out there are Mexicans. So we do have a workforce in which that is kind of um, stratified or almost segregated in, in some ways. The reality, though, I think, is that in for many, many, many people, people are working together with other people and living in communities with other people. You know, it's true that we have segregation. We, it's true that we have you know, neighborhoods that are segregated according to race and according to nationality. But it is also true that in the U.S. and, and in Canada, um, we are all, in the end, living together, and we are all, in the end, working together. So we are sort of creating a common working-class culture here in both countries um, in which people are contributing the languages and the culture and the traditions and the dances and the music and the food um, and the traditions of social protest. Um, that people have brought with them, and it is changing the culture that people have found when they get here. And 
and then we create something that is new and that is um, enormous problems of social injustice, but it is in some ways, I think, it is our creation. You know, the working class culture of, of our two countries is our creation as working people. And what we are also trying to do is to get rid of those parts of the legacy of the past, the inequality, the slavery, the pogroms, all the rest of it, um, so that you know, so that we can kind of flower as people. And that, I think, is one of the worst aspects of what Trump is doing. But you know, let's be honest. You know, Obama too. You know, the the mass deportations and treating parts of our population and saying, well, you don't belong here. You should be somewhere else. You're not part of this community. You're trying to sort of rip up and rip apart um, this fabric here. Um, and I think that is something that is enormously painful and also to the detriment of what um, we are trying to create. Yes, we have a president that is racist. Yes, we have a president that seems to be ill-prepared for political diplomacy or even willing to take into account what responsibility may mean for this office. However, politics has never been about the person in charge. Politics has been about the people on the ground. Politics has always been about what the people want. It, there, there, there is a point where you have to question you know when, when do we make a stand and as you say demand the reparation be made because <laughs> reparation is due and uh and in the very least at, at the very least i think we as a society who live in, in the u.s who are documented have a responsibility to stand up and protect those who are made vulnerable by you know this horrible um terribly unjust policies that are being put in place. Um, I want to end our interview on a high note and point out that as, a, as an activist, you're also a beautiful artist. And David Bacon, as a photographer, has published, has written. He, he has an exposition of his latest uh, of his book. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I will post the dates on the website. Sure, Sylvia, thank you also. Um, well, the latest book is called In the Fields of the North, or In los Campos del Norte, and it is a book of 302 photographs and about a dozen oral histories of people who are farm workers um, in the U.S., mostly in California, but some other um, areas as well, too. And these document um, people working, what the work is like, what people's communities are like, um, how people live and their living conditions, the culture that people um, bring with them, and um, it's also completely bilingual in English and Spanish. In fact, it's published at this simultaneously um, in the United States by University of California Press and in Mexico by the Colegio de la Frontera Norte. So this is an effort to sort of take a look at who the people are who are responsible for putting um, food on the table for us. Thank you so much for being with us. What can people do? What would you ask of your fellow Americans in times like this? I think the most important thing to do right now, I would say the, the real urgent thing, is to sign the petition to the um, to ICE, not to deport Maru Mora Viapando. And um, if you Google her name, 
um, you will come up with the petition. So it's Maru, M-A-R-U. Her middle name is Mora, M-O-R-A, and her last name is Iapando, V-I-L-L-A-P-A-N-D-O. And I think that that is right now the most important thing that, that people can do. Thank you so much for being with us. That's my pleasure, Sylvia, as always. Take care. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com. Visit Latin Waves Media to hear previous shows to access resources or support our efforts towards social change via community project engagement. Thank you and bye for now.